My name is Zach Como, and you're listening to the My Tech Decisions Podcast. Welcome back to the My Tech Decisions Podcast. Like I said, my name is Zach and I'm your host. Today's episode is about how to secure school networks as the physical school buildings begin to reopen to students and faculty who had been learning and teaching from home for the better part of a year. John Shire, a senior security advisor at cybersecurity firm Sophos, joins the pod to talk about what IT managers can do to make sure they aren't giving bad actors a foot in the door by reintroducing malware-ridden devices back onto the network. System admins and IT managers should take a careful and methodical approach to ensure that the return to the physical school building doesn't jeopardize the school district's cybersecurity. Shire and I talk about steps involved, which include setting up a separate network and writing deep scans for malware. Before we get to that interview, here's a quick reminder that the MyTech Decisions podcast is available on iTunes and the Google Play Store. Download and subscribe to hear weekly interviews with IT professionals that can help you make the right decisions for your organization. And now here's John Shire. What are the cybersecurity implications of distance learning and that upcoming transition back to uh, in-person education? So, I mean, let's talk about the the, um, going back into the schools. I think that that one's a little bit easier to to grok. You know, you've got a lot of systems that were taken home, so they were probably you know some of them, some school districts, some uh, boards were were handing out devices to to the kids to take home, um, and they've been left potentially, and that's that's a big that that word does a lot of heavy lifting here, but they've been left potentially without any attention for a period of X number of months, right? So um, depending on on the school boards and, and how they've had their management. Uh, or how, how they, what tools they had to manage the the fleet of devices that they had, um, there are going to be varying degrees of of ability to do things like assure that you know the any of the policies that they put on there that that prevent uh, bad things from happening, whether that's from a safety standpoint, you know, or, or like you know browsing bad websites, those kinds of things, or security standpoint, not getting malware. Uh, knowing that those things are still being are still active and being applied is is one thing. Uh, also, things like patching, right? So knowing that patches are still happening, that uh, patches are being applied successfully on devices, specifically, um, you know, with uh, any number of you know, high risk, high severity vulnerabilities that have been released over the the last again X number of months, depending on the school district. Um, you know, knowing having that assurance and knowing that all those things have been happening will vary from district to district. So when all these devices start coming back in. Um, there's a degree of risk from, you know, very risky where everything kind of went wrong to very little risk where um, all these things were happening, there was still ongoing monitoring. Um, and, and then the, one of the big distinctions that needs to be made as well is the type of operating system, right? So for the most part, and this doesn't apply liberally across the board, um, I think a lot of school districts tend to use Chromebooks, um, at least in you know, my 
we're, we're, I'm up in Canada, but you know, with my children, uh, it's mostly Chromebooks. And that confers a degree of protection, right? Because there's not a lot you can do on a Chromebook beyond just use the browser. Um, and so that is probably the best case scenario. If everybody got Chromebooks, I think the risk of them bringing those back in are, is probably pretty low to the, to the, to the um, we'll call it the organization, but to the school board, to the, to the network. Um, now, if some schools are handing out things like Windows or Mac computers, the risk calculus shifts a little bit, right? Because then you start to get into a lot of these other things that I mentioned, like having making sure security products are on installed and, and updated and working properly, making sure patching is, is occurring. Um, so I'll pause right there. But there, there's you know there's a quite a, a variance between the the really risky stuff and the non-risky stuff. And you know what do you what do you guys think in terms of uh, you know you know, a bad actor is um, kind of exploiting those those uh, those trends and vulnerabilities. You know, are our schools particularly big targets right now? Well, we saw an uptick certainly at the beginning of the school year uh, with respect to attacks on schools. I think there was quite a, a number of school districts in the U.S. that were targeted specifically because they were going back to school. Right? They, um, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. They rely heavily on. Um, on their technology, right? And so some of these bad actors, some of these criminals decided, well, let's disrupt the technology and disrupt the educational system as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And so that occurred in a number of school districts. It did have, it did you know, cause great disruption for some, uh, less for others, uh, but it was a cause of concern going through uh, the last, you know, uh, how many months have we been at it now since, since, since September, right? Uh, I've also seen, continued attacks against uh, higher ed uh, institutions, right? So very recently, Stanford was one of the really high profile ones that got hit. Um, but other universities across, and, you know, all universities and colleges across the, the U.S. have been hit as well. And for for differing reasons, right? Some, a lot of these criminals, most of them really are just after the financial gain. Um, but there was some indication, and, and I haven't really been able to verify, you know, the absolute truth of this, but there was some indication that, that some of these criminals were going after some research institutions specifically that were doing research against COVID, right, which is pretty disgusting if you ask me. Um, but schools are a target because they have, um, they're seen as, as having uh, less ability to respond, less security to begin with because of resource constraints, right? Uh, a school just like uh, some other public institutions like a hospital, for example, a school is there to teach the children. It's there to um, to make sure that the children get the most out of their uh, educational experience as possible. To that end, schools will prioritize budgets for things like for things that increase learning and that um, that help the children, right? Mm -hmm. And just like in hospitals, where care is a, is a, is, a, is the most important thing, the dollars are diverted towards things that increase care and and, and save lives. So things like security and cybersecurity. Uh, tend to fall down the priority ladder a little bit, and and I think that's why some of these cyber criminals are targeting these types of public institutions. Right. And are are these endpoint devices that are they're not only really giving them giving them out to students. Uh, my my wife is a public school teacher, and she also got a uh, got a uh, you know a little laptop from from her school district just so she can you know uh, you know do her uh, remote classes uh, you know when she needs to. Um, so are those endpoint devices? A common attack vector? 
I would say that they're probably not a common attack vector in the sense that I wouldn't, as a, so, you know, as an attacker, I wouldn't go, okay, let me find a laptop that I know is associated with the school. I think that the, the work involved in doing that would be too high. However, where there's, there's opportunistic, um, you know, there's this, what I'm trying to say, the, opportunistically, you might end up on one of these devices because of a mass phishing campaign, for example, that you launch against a domain, right? So, uh, you know, school.edu, right? You just fish that that domain, and yeah. you're going to end up on at least your email is going to end up potentially on one of these computers and one of these endpoints. If that endpoint, um, and now depending on the email, it could be if the phishing email could either be for credential. Obviously, there's more reasons, but you know, let's pick two of the major ones. Either credential harvesting, where I'm just trying to fish you for your credentials, so then I can log into the network myself and do more damage that way. Or I'm trying to use malware on your machine to do things like credential harvesting or just as an implant. Um, so they they could opportunistically end up on those those endpoints. But my you know my feeling and and from the instances you know the cases I've I've been reading about this past year. Um, that's just where it lands. It's, it's more opportunistic, and if they can get a bit of a beachhead that way, they will. But more often than not, it's done through infrastructure, right? So they're um, they're getting credentials somewhere, and then using that to attack the infrastructure, getting a foothold that way, you know, planting um, backdoors, planting persistence points, or they're exploiting things like um, uh, the, the VPN vulnerabilities, the rash of VPN vulnerabilities that we saw last year, right? Uh, exposed RDP or, or remote access uh, points. They're, they're, they're brute forcing their way in or, or finding ways, to, uh, other ways to get into the network that way. And then from there, they're moving around. So is there a risk? Absolutely. Because, you know, any little door left to crack open is an opportunity for a cyber criminal. But again, depending on the operating system, depending on the, the platform, if it's a Chromebook, I would say that there's a lot less um, risk from something like malware, but there's still a very, very high risk from credential theft, right? Whereas with something like a Windows or a Mac computer, right, the the risk from malware does tend to go up much higher. Um, so, so you're saying that, that as schools start to reopen and kids come back, that that, that is um, presenting uh, more risk and danger rather than, than uh, distance learning? So, yeah, so that, that was the first part to your question when, when we're coming back. And uh, one of the things I would do if I was running, you know, an IT department in, in a school, um, I would take a very uh, methodical approach to bringing things in just to make sure, right? So I, I would, especially if they're, they're um, non-Chromebook type uh, devices where I would, you know, maybe set up a separate network, bring these devices in, give them a thorough scan and potential clean and, and give myself some assurance as to the, the security level of those devices before bringing them into the network. Um, now to, to the question about, you know, is there more risk of coming back in versus one versus another? Um, I think when it comes to distance learning from a cybersecurity perspective, you you are still incurring risk specifically around the credential theft side of things. You're still incurring risk potentially around malware that can get on a machine. And then if you have, um, now I, there's a lot of, um, a lot of caveats in security, right? 
if the school is using something like a VPN to be to access some of its resources, then the criminals can use that too if they get a hold of an endpoint, right? So th there's a there's a risk there as well. But for the most part, and in my experience with my children, from what I've heard, you know, a lot of people is you know they're using things like Google Classroom, right, which is all very much remote. Um, so the regardless of whether you're inside or outside, right, whether you're at school with a device or at home with a device, you're just accessing a website. And so again, credential theft becomes uh, just as risky on both sides because that credential then can be used to access other um, access, uh, other parts of the network, other devices potentially on the network. So I, I don't know that I'd say conclusively there's a higher risk one versus another when it comes to just accessing school resources through something like Google Classroom or some of the other you know, online portals. I say that there's a marginally higher risk of bringing in devices that have been potentially left unprotected or um, uh, or, or unmonitored for a period of time, right? Right. So who's uh, responsible for securing those devices? Um, you know, the, the students, their parents, or is it IT's job to make sure that, you know, these hundreds or thousands of laptops or however many there are are, you know, secure while they're outside of the school? Yeah, it's... Uh... The, the, the short answer, I think, has to be who's providing the device uh, needs to have a, a major stake in assuring the security of that device. So for the cases of where a school is giving a child a laptop, I think the onus is on them to make sure that they're putting their best security foot forward, making sure that all the things I mentioned previously, right, security software, management software, you know, patch management software, monitoring software that assures that all this stuff is working and that things are working as expected and, and are able to report in their status, right? That is up to the person who's delivering that device to the end user. And in, in these cases, we're, we're talking schools, right? Um, I, I don't want to um, take the any – I, I want to make sure that, that, that the end user also has some stake in this because at the end of the day, your behavior on that device – will also affect the potential security of that device, right? So if you're going, if you take the device home and you start to, I don't know, go on to wear sites and downloading cracks for games and cheat patches and those kinds of things, right? Uh, let's say on a system that doesn't have monitoring for that kind of stuff, then you're putting that device at risk by your actions. And so um, there, there has to be some, um, there has to be some, uh, sorry, I'm, Blanking on the word I'm looking for here, some um, uh, ownership of, of that risk, right? The part of the, the user, in this case, kids, and <laughs> um, sometimes, you know, kids will be kids, right? Um, but so I think the, the major onus is on the, the, the school boards to make sure that they are giving the people that are going to be the end users, whether it's a teacher or a student, that they're giving them a device that is as secure as possible. And the users have to abide by a set of rules and, and policies that will ensure that that device stays secure throughout the lifetime of the device while it's in their possession and away from you know, the, this IT security team. Um, so it weighs heavily towards the, the provider, but I think there's, you know, we can't discount the fact that the, the users also have a part to play. Right, right. So, you know, how do these, um school IT departments, which are, which are tiny. I mean, there's 
Oh yeah. Sometimes, sometimes I mean, there's sometimes. one or two guys from the, yep. from the school. So how do they make sure that these devices uh, coming back, you know, um, aren't ridden with um, malware? And how, you know, you, you kind of mentioned that to you know, kind of take a methodical approach. But you know, what what other steps can they take? Yeah. So the first thing I would do is I would set up a a separate you know Wi-Fi network and have the 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 existing network right that's been that the device was tethered to is probably going to automatically like light up so you'd want to make sure that that doesn't happen or or if if you know if you want to just segregate that part of the network somehow make sure that the laptops aren't just jumping onto the you know we'll call it the production network to use a corporate term but you can still call you know education production networks as well right um making sure that just simply having that laptop light up on your network isn't going to present a risk. So somehow segregate those devices. Next, what you want to do is you want to um, scan them for a few things. You want to scan them, make sure that they have, and, and that's uh, if you haven't had the ability to do so, right? Uh, or just as an assurance, you want to scan to make sure that all the patches have been applied up to uh, that current date, right? And uh, you want to just do a, an in-depth scan with something, you know, uh, obviously I'll say Sophos Intercept X, but a product like that, which can look at the machine in depth and really understand uh, and ascertain what other stuff is on there other than the known good stuff that is supposed to be on there. Um, and, that, you know, once you get a clean bill of health, then you can transition those devices back into the uh but those would be sort of the top three approaches, and you know, there's more nuance in there as well, and there's more things you could probably do. But I'd say those are the top three for me. Yeah. Um, I think uh, hopefully this already happened in most school districts. But what level of, of um, you know cybersecurity training do you think needs to happen uh, in in these school departments? You know, both with uh, educators and students. Yeah, I think that uh, that's that's a that's a great way to increase the overall and you know we've we talk a lot about herd immunity during a pandemic right and i i do like to make those parallels within cybersecurity, where we can have a digital herd immunity if the more education that goes into understanding the cybersecurity risks and and how to avoid some of those risks the better off we all are so i think that there needs to be a there needs to be a defined program within education that allows the teachers to understand the risks that cyber that, that cybersecurity helps try to mitigate uh, the risks that exist both from, in terms of security and, and internet safety uh, and then you also need to start tailoring you know curriculum to uh, to age appropriate curriculum with children so that they are being um, taught these things as as they go along just just like we introduce you know more um, complete and, and complex mathematics to them as they grow older, I think you can start small with cybersecurity and then you can start introducing more complex things, you know, start getting into things like two-factor authentication later on, maybe when they get to high school. I don't know what the appropriate age is for that, but um, but the bottom line is I, I do think that there needs to be some attention paid to cybersecurity. We live in, an, in, an, in a completely connected digital world. That's not going away anytime soon. And I think that this hybrid model now of, of distance and home learning or uh, of in-person learning is going to persist in some areas. So it's really important to give both the educators and the students all the tools they have to stay safe and secure online. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I think that um, is a is a topic or a discussion that I think that the general population needs to have is about more cybersecurity awareness. Um, yeah. so, I mean, I mean, I write about this stuff, and you're obviously a cybersecurity expert, but um, I don't think most people know what what two-factor authentication is. Right, and it's everything's got to be done up. Uh, in an age-appropriate way, and it's also got to be uh, done in a way that doesn't overwhelm the end user as well, right? So just ju- jumping into the deep end of using, you know, uh, U2F, you know, hardware keys with their social media accounts, it's not going to work. You have to approach it uh, in a in a piecemeal way and build, you know, use building blocks to get to a point where you can talk about something like U2F without actually um, overburdening the the audience, right? Because it's just not going to stick otherwise. I think um, you know things like just talking to people about passwords and how easily a password can be reused, right, and, or how easily a password can be abused um, is a good start because that's something everybody's familiar with, right? Not everybody's familiar with you know YubiKeys and hardware tokens and those kinds of things. So it's really and, and to me it's it's analogous to things like teaching children uh, financial concepts and financial responsibility in a way that they can understand it, you know, from you know, first grade all the way up to high school, you start to just introduce different concepts, right? Um, I think we can do that with cybersecurity as well. And, and at the end, what you have is, a, is a, a, a human that's just more comfortable with security, more comfortable with the types of things, you know, the types of behaviors that are appropriate and inappropriate, and, and making better security decisions all along the way. Right, yeah. I was, I was just thinking that... Um... No one, no one told me when I was a teenager not to use LimeWire and download music on LimeWire. You know, yes, yeah, and something you did, and then uh, you dealt with uh, the consequences after the fact. It's and something it, you did, and, and it's something, frankly, the adults didn't really know or care about, right? Right, exactly. So, um, what, what about the concept of, of zero trust? It seems like that that would be a part of the solution, especially when it comes to students. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of zero trust. I mean, as a company, we we have a, a strategy that that is very well aligned with zero trust and, and our products are, you know, are, are taking that approach. And, uh, but, but, you know, my, my feeling around zero trust is it's, it's the, it's the right way to go because you're, you're taking, you're taking the, the no longer existing perimeter, right? The one that we used to have the you know, sort of the hard candy shell outside with the gooey center. Um, you're taking that perimeter and you're wrapping it around the user as opposed to a device or a network. And by wrapping it around a user, you're able to make better contextual decisions about what's happening. And so, you know, if you've got a user, for example, and let's use the school context, you've got a, a student who is you know, logging in from their Chromebook every every day at 8 a.m. from, a, you know, a geo-located IP address that is, you know, Indiana, for example. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, at three o'clock in the morning, they're logging in from Paraguay on a Windows machine. That's a problem, right? Um, they've got valid credentials, right? They, their device might be clean if it's doing a kind of scan of like, you know, does this device have any malware on it from a VPN gateway or an access gateway? So there's a lot of like green check marks, but the context doesn't fit, right? And so now we can start applying, um, we can start applying, you know, decisions based on that context. And that's, so I think zero trust is definitely the way to go. Um, it won't be for everybody everywhere all the time, but 
the more we can start to go down the route, road to zero trust, I think the more secure everybody's going to be. And the pandemic's kind of a good time to do that because I don't know about, to be fair, I don't know about school budgets if they've had any increase in terms of being able to spend on technology, like like co companies have had sort of budget release to just like get people working, right? Yeah. Um, but if you can take some of that budget and start applying to things like zero trust, I think it's, it's going to go a long way down the road. Right, right. Yeah, and I think at least in um, in public education, at least um, I think funding is is a huge issue. And like I said before, these IT departments are very small. Um, I think yeah. my wife's a you know a public school teacher, and I think there's only like one guy for me. It's not a, it's not a very big school. It's a very small town, but still, I mean, he has had his hands full. Like he, yep. he always complains about how hard it is to get him to answer an email because he's just running around trying to do everything. Uh, yeah. Days. Um. You know, so how do you get over that? Yeah, it's, it's kind of unfair in certain terms to, in, in, in ways to, to expect that one individual who is already trying to do the best they can, given, you know, the, the budgets and the resource allocations and all of that, to ask them to do more. Um, so I think how you start to address that problem is you start to look at uh, what uh, what partnerships can you make within the community that allow you to do some of these things. So, and, and one of the partnerships is, you know, talking to a, a managed security provider, right? Somebody who can take some of that burden for you and, and apply their security expertise in a way that helps you, you know, helps you elevate your security. So I think, you know, that's, that also incurs dollars, but it probably doesn't incur the kind of dollars and resource uh, allocation that let's say, you know, the one, that one individual has to now learn all about zero trust and figure out what products to buy and implement them and configure them and all of that, right? So I think you're starting to balance that a little bit. I don't know if, um, you know, you look at organizations like NIST and I just, this just came to my mind. I'm not sure if that's the appropriate application of this, but you know, NIST has standards and standards around government use of, of systems, right? I'm not sure if there's an educational component to that, but maybe there might need to be, right? Maybe uh, NIST has to say, okay, well, we're going to say the base level of, of security for an educational institution is going to be this uh, across the board, right? Whether you're private, public, or whatever. And and maybe the government has a hand to play in that. And, you know, and we, we, we want the government to stay out of a lot of things. I, I recognize that, but maybe that's where they can help by seeding a little bit of of the, 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 the foundation of cybersecurity with a little bit of cash and, and guidance and saying, okay, let's start from here. If you want to go up from there, then, you know, find the money and, and prioritize the budgets yourself. But let's start from, you know, a, a good solid baseline. That's one approach, right? Might not be the right approach, but it's one approach. Um, so I, I think just seeking help wherever you can, incremental security gains wherever and whenever you can is, is where we start. So if today... Uh, you don't have a an, um, an EDR solution, right? That can help you. Maybe maybe that's what you buy. You buy an EDR solution that can help you uh, identify hotspots and trouble spots in your network and go you know, can go hunt them down and and help you remediate those kinds of things. And then later on, we can start thinking about adding things like you know uh, passwordless authentication and multi-factor authentication, all these other kind of really nice bells and whistles, but let's start small. Let's, let's find gaps that we can close easily and quickly 
close those, and then find the next one. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, a lot, a lot of municipal organizations are, are um, you know, big targets, but especially schools, especially for, um, you know, threats like, like ransomware, because in many cases, schools probably pay this ransom because they need to be open. They, they're, they can't really afford to close the school because uh, there's a ransomware attack. So they, and I think cyber criminals are smart and they understand that. And that was probably a trend before COVID. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, do you think it's incumbent upon schools to really, you know, in, invest in their, in their cybersecurity? The short answer is yes. I think they, they do need to take a good long, hard look at, at where they currently sit on the spectrum of cybersecurity maturity, right? Because it's, it's really, it is very much a journey and not a destination. Um, I mean, absolute perfect security, I think, is unattainable. And the, you know, the next level down of the, the absolute most secure thing you can have is unaffordable for most people, right? And so, you need to understand and, and have a – you have to have an honest conversation with, with, with yourself and your stakeholders to say, okay, where are we at today? Where would we like to be tomorrow or you know, three months from now? And what can we do? What little steps can we take along the way to, to make sure that that happens? And, um, and I think if, if everybody has that mindset of, like, let's, let's have a plan, let's have a – an idea of, of what we want to achieve and let's have the will to do it, then I think collectively we can start bringing the, the level of you know, security preparedness up significantly. Right. Great. Uh, John, thanks very much. I appreciate your time. Uh, unless there's anything else that you think we need to hit on about this. Uh, no, I, I think, yeah, the, the only, you know, my, my, my usual roundup is just to, to touch back to something I said earlier, which is, you know, if we want if we want these these cyber criminals to to go away uh we need to treat security uh, as a sort of lifestyle right a 24/7 thing it's not just the thing you do at home or at or, sorry at work or at at school it's the thing you do at home as well so that 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 includes things like educating people and making sure that uh, we bring that herd immunity up that digital herd immunity up so that we're all safer right right and not using limewire <laughs> Does that, thing, does that even exist anymore? <laughs> I remember LimeWire. <laughs> yeah, who doesn't? I mean, oh man. Uh, ooh, I had yeah, I had, <laughs> I had a lot of music from LimeWire. Yeah, Napster was was the thing when I was a kid. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, uh, I was a little, a little bit late to uh, the Napster game. I think it, yeah. it got like shut down eventually, or you had to pay for it. Yeah, it got it. It went through a whole bunch of different things. He got shut down, and then he got bought by, or the you know, brand got bought by Real Media or something like that, or some other company. And it's it's still kind of around. Really? No way. In one way or another, yeah. It's it's, it's the, the brand still exists somewhere, and I don't know in what capacity, but yeah. I'm sure they're doing great. Uh huh. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, John, thanks very much. I appreciate your time, man. My pleasure, Zach. Thanks for listening to another episode of the My Tech Decisions podcast, where it's our mission to help you make technology decisions for your company. If you would like to learn more, head to mytechdecisions.com or follow us on Twitter at mytechdecisions. You can also follow me on Twitter at ZWcomo. Until next time.